Environmental experts have called it a massive wake-up call. Fossil fuels still make up the bulk of global energy, and the effects on the environment are clear. According to present estimates, at this rate we'll run out of oil and gas in 50 years or so, and in about a century for coal. The next decade is decisive. We're sitting at one of the most critical, pivotal points in our history, and we have to do something about it. From the Office of Communications and Marketing at Texas Tech, this is Fearless, a podcast featuring the untold stories of the school we love so dearly. This region displays an abundance of natural resources. How can we leverage them to gain more sustainable forms of energy? Well, researchers on campus are wondering the same thing. So they're asking the right questions to find a solution. Work they're conducting in small teams across campus is designed with people like you in mind to create positive change in our society using earth, wind, and water. There are lots of ways that I could describe Geraldine Bate. For starters, she's the Chemical Engineering Department Chair in the Whitaker College of Engineering. She's a researcher and professor, a mom of two daughters, a wife, an amateur chef, and a pretty exceptional golfer. Actually, when I walk into her office, it's one of the first things that I see, a golf ball in a glass case on top of her bookshelf. It's from a hole-in-one at a course in Ohio. So yeah, she's pretty impressive on many levels. She has patents for dozens, literally dozens of inventions that she's created over the last few years. Most recently, a COVID-19 detector and a rapid COVID-19 test. We'll get into that more in a later episode, but today we're going to angle her story around a small portion of her vast knowledge base as it relates to creating sustainable energy. In this type of research is kind of becoming like the bread and butter of every chemical engineering generations to come. And I, particularly when we look at Texas and the way we are with all the wind, I always tell people we could be pumping electrons out of Texas. Why? Because we use those electrons to make chemicals, to make fertilizers, to clean water, to make metals, uh, to make materials and components for electronic circuits, reference elements. So it's a bunch of things. So we are golden to have the opportunity to get a lot of things out of Texas because of this energy. So, In a scholarly article, Jerry says that hydrogen is the lightest and cleanest energy carrier. She calls it the fuel of the future. Among the other research that she's balancing, Jerry's been working toward an initiative that converts waste into a renewable source of energy. How is she doing this? I wonder the same thing. For many years, she worked in water research, discovering how to use microorganisms to eliminate contaminants. She applied that concept to ammonia found in waste and discovered that it was the same. That area intrigued me because I was excited by removing ammonia, which is NH3, out of wastewater, which is basically you need to remove. You cannot have that. In municipal, this ammonia is coming from the nitrogen that we release, humans, right? Like, every time you go to the bathroom, you do number one, number two, there is going to be this nitrogen in organic form and organic form. So, ideally, that's what wastewater treatments do, right? Essentially giving waste new life. Parts of this research took place at Western Texas College in Snyder. They have a facility where they raise pigs. This partnership with Western Texas also provided Jerry and her team the chance to broaden the scope of this research. 
more individuals connected, more possibilities for its future. Now, this next portion, there's a lot to unpack. So walk with me. They use these microorganisms so that when the water is released, it doesn't have this nitrogen compound because it creates RG bloom and all these type of things. So what I did, I did that electrochemically. So I was breaking down the molecule of ammonia, NH3, by applying an electric field. And that produces nitrogen, which is back into air, like the nitrogen molecule that is part of air, and hydrogen. And that was the beauty of the process, that for the first time, you were able to take a waste that contains ammonia and then convert it into nitrogen and hydrogen. And that hydrogen goes back into the wastewater treatment plant, or you could use it for, for electric vehicles, you know, for fuel cell cars, or for any other type of So So she's taking a product at the end of its life and transforming it to potentially power our vehicles or be used as a fuel replacement. What? Now, as a follow-up with that system, the intriguing part is that we discover ways on how to actually use electrocatalysis and release that ammonia and concentrate it in a way that we can also use it as a fertilizer, which is another follow-up. She's used this theory for water, waste, and even coal. When we first sat down with Jerry for this interview, I asked her how she balances all these different kinds of research that she conducts. See, I was looking at the final product, the inventions that were on the market, and how they all seem to be so different. How can a COVID-19 rapid test be developed in the same lab as the work that we're discussing today? But as she explained it to me, it's the same concept, just applied in lots of different ways. So it, it was like a perfect match, right? And then uh, then the same thing, we're working with uh, farmers in the state of Texas. We're also working with manufacturers, with uh, ag cooperative. It is, it's an extended ecosystem. Her work has gained the attention of the National Science Foundation. The NSF announced in early August that Texas Tech and four partner institutions were selected to receive the largest federally funded grant in school history. It's for a research center called CASPER, the Center for Advancing Sustainable and Distributed Fertilizer Production. It'll be on the Texas Tech campus, just steps from the administration building. Texas Tech will work with MIT, Case Western Reserve, Florida A&M, and Georgia Tech to expand on the research that we talked about today. The NSF has granted $26.5 million for the first five years, another $24.5 for the following five. This is an enormous deal for Texas Tech, its partner institutions, and for Jerry, the director of the facility. So stay tuned. You'll be hearing a lot more about this in the future. It looked like a bomb hit it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was scary, it was wild, and it was just a wild night in Lubbock, Texas. On May the 11th, 1970, at 9.46 p.m., Lubbock was devastated by the first historically documented Category 5 multiple vortices tornado. That vicious tornado tore through East Lubbock, taking with it homes, businesses, and churches. 26 people died, and more than 500 were injured. It's estimated the tornado caused more than $135 million in damage. Keyshore Mehta had been on campus for six years when the tornado struck. He'd invested his time and research into understanding how different materials are impacted by natural disasters. He'd hoped to use that information to develop safer building practices. And now, it looked like that chance would come a lot closer to home than expected. When the tornado came through in 1970, and I did have the lights flicker, but it stayed on. 
when I came to the department next day, we started to realize the amount of damage and the type of damage and the number of people killed. Keyshore and fellow researchers Joe Miner and Jim McDonald jumped into action. They launched themselves into learning more. You take a building and see what, what was the material, because they were different materials, steel, concrete, timber, uh, masonry, write down what, what the material is and see what direction the failure has occurred. What the building they collected data everywhere they could. What types of materials were used? What was the level of damage? How did the structures fail? And they wrote a report based on every single detail that they learned. Keyshore and his colleagues would use that information to help create a new standard for school buildings. It took years to implement, but their research related to materials would provide direction for a safer building practice and construction. Probably one of the better uh, approach to it is how to calculate the wind speed from the damage, which years later on helped us to refine the F scale that Ted Fujita had developed into EF scale. So that's why EF scale is used. And as more of my file for EF scale is right over in that corner. That he I points to the corner of his bookshelf where an old binder is resting. They created the EF scale that we still use today to identify the strength of a tornado. Keyshore went on to become the first Texas Tech faculty elected to the National Academy of Engineering. We talked for about an hour and a half on this day. It was mostly him sharing stories of his life's work, what he's proud of, and the joys of spending his life with people who share his passion. He told me at one point they weren't trying to be revolutionary or create something that would change their field. They were just doing their jobs. And I appreciate the humility here, but the reality is that they did all those things. They developed a new way of categorizing tornadoes. They established a new building code, and they created the Wind Science and Engineering Research Center. It's still on campus, known today as the National Wind Institute, which has continued to grow. It still focuses on atmospheric science, but it's expanded to include other areas of research, like renewables. But we also have research agendas related to wind energy, renewable energy more broadly. The NWI is led by John Schrader. How to improve our forecast models to, to be able to do a better job of integrating renewables into the grid. Um, even things like battery storage or other research tangents like lightning research. John's research is specifically focused on wind energy. And if you're going to be studying wind, is there really a better place to do it than the high plains? Right, how many days do we just have windy conditions, right? They may not be associated with a storm, but, but yet on a lot of days the wind kicks up. And so what you find is it is a premier location. If we John and other researchers are looking closely at wind farms. You know when you're driving down Highway 84 headed towards Snyder and you see dozens of turbines on either side of the road clustered together? That is a wind farm. It's strategically designed to maximize wind flow and produce electricity. When the wind moves through and by a turbine, we know that the turbine extracts energy. That's how, the, that's how it produces energy. And so the wind behind that turbine is, is decreased in magnitude. And that decrease moves downstream. And if another turbine is located downstream, it can impact that next turbine downstream. So you have this wake that develops behind one rotor that can impact another rotor. And we can manipulate that wake to some degree by being proactive. We might be able to turn that turbine, for instance, a little bit out of the wind and it actually deflects the wake. 
Even rotating a turbine the slightest degree can have an enormous impact. We might be able to manipulate one to say sacrifice a percent or two of energy from the first row of turbines, but actually gain five or more percent from a second turbine downstream. And in the process of doing that, the actual farm itself produces more energy. And that's sort of the next frontier. It's, it's, it's how do we maximize these farms? It's, it's a big data, big, you know, it's a big problem. But it's something that John is invested in. He says that it's the future of wind energy. But that's where the industry is going. That's where DOE, uh, the Department of Energy, is headed. And, and that's where we can contribute. John's focus in his own research may be wind energy, but he oversees dozens of faculty conducting research connected to the National Wind Institute. It's interdisciplinary, meaning that there are researchers with very different backgrounds who are part of the NWI. Wind engineers and atmospheric scientists like Chris Weiss. Picture this. The darkened sky is thick with billowing clouds and varying shades of gray. It's late spring in the area known as Tornado Alley. A blast of cold wind smacks the windshield of an all-white pickup truck racing toward the storm. As a flash of white lightning illuminates the sky, Chris Weiss and his team, they know that the storm they've been tracking is here. Clouds continue to darken, spitting rain and hail. The signal to stay indoors has long been delivered. See, because people like Chris are out there watching and studying, the rest of us can know the risks and the dangers of severe storms like this one. The data he collects in the field helps prepare the public for severe storms and tornadoes with more time to get to a safe area. We're trying to understand you know, how tornadoes form. Uh, you look at uh, severe thunderstorms, a lot of them look very similar. Uh, they're, they're all rotating uh, in the mid-levels, maybe even the low levels, uh, but some produce tornadoes and, and some don't. Chris started at Texas Tech in 2004. Since that time, he's conducted dozens of field experiments all over the country. Most recently, in late spring 2022, two research projects got delayed because of COVID, resulting in back-to-back -back projects for basically three months straight, from April to June. One of the things that really drives me uh, is, is false alarms. Um, our uh, tornado warnings right now, uh, nationwide, false alarm rate's about 70, 75%. Chris was on two projects, one in the Central Plains, the other in the Southeast, known to some as Dixie Alley. It's kind of a disproportionate loss of life for tornadoes out there. Chris says they learned that tornadoes are more likely to strike here during the night, where it's harder to see them coming. He says that the National Weather Service software updates every six minutes. And as crazy as it sounds, rotations have the ability to drop down within that window. This was the third time this group of people was out in the field conducting research for this particular project since 2019. They clocked 9,000 miles in five weeks. Uh, with uh, $5.50 uh, diesel prices, it was, uh, it, was, it was quite a lot of fun. <laughs> 9,000 in five weeks is quite a bit above average, by the way. I asked because I knew you were thinking it too. But Chris is adamant that there's a reason he spends weeks on the road at a time. I don't think um, you need any more motivation for this work than driving through some of the areas that have been impacted by tornadoes. In Northeast Arkansas, we drove across the, uh, the path of the, uh, the December tornado. Uh, we'll stay on this wide uh, perspective for a minute, but this is the rotation right now that we're watching. Had a confirmed tornado. We continue to follow breaking news tonight where there is a reported mass casualty incident unfolding in the town of Monette. 
was, it was incredible just standing there, seeing all the debarked trees. Uh, still some spots where you could, you know, there, there were still foundations that were, you know, wiped off by the tornado. And uh, just generally you can sense people in that, in that area they are just really, really beat down. Kentucky's governor says that the death toll from Friday night's tornadoes is likely to climb, quote, north of 70 victims. Everywhere along the line of this tornado that touched down and stayed down for 227 miles. Over you see that and you think, wow, what can we do to help these people, not just with the forecasting and the warning, but even in the aftermath, you know, what can we do to you know, help these people and regain their, their livelihoods? When I see that, can we replay that event? Can we see something differently that could have helped us, you know, uh, advise these people, uh, give them more time? That's really what it boils down to for me. I'm just tired of watching people get, get hurt and killed by tornadoes, and that's really the number one thing for me. Yeah. It's a quiet, peaceful morning. Moments before the sun spills over the horizon, illuminating the sleepy life below. The smooth, soft, never-ceasing sound of moving water drifts through the trees and into the endless open sky. The presence of the river is commanding. Its peaceful, powerful body contains a precious resource. But it's been threatened. Its life-giving power is poisoned by something unseen and unforgiving. See, there are bodies like this that exist across the country, carrying for miles a source of life that's been contaminated. For decades, researchers have attempted to answer the question, what can we do about it? And Danny Reibel happens to be one of them. His office is quirky humor coupled with unmistakable organization. Especially if I'm facing the other way. It's right? also that's actually if you recognize nice. Star Trek. Really clever. I love it. This piece of wall art is stationed next to his light switch. It alerts Danny every time someone enters his office or peeks their head in for a quick hello. I appreciate your little Leonard figurine over there, too. I love it. Yeah. The Bang Theory fan. I love it. The, uh, the Big Bang uh, has a special uh, relationship to me because you know, they're at Caltech, and so I was at Caltech. And I've often thought myself of as being a winner <laughs> more than I care to at times. But. A light brown felt hat sits atop the printer beside his desk, sandwiched between floor-to-ceiling wooden bookshelves that are in perfect condition. I'm talking meticulous, down to the content of each academic book. Do you have these books organized in a certain way? They are. How are they organized? So uh, it's by topic. Okay. Uh, each shelf is a particular topical area. There's some numerical algebraic information on the second shelf up in the middle there. Years ago, after his dad retired from the Air Force, his family moved from Delaware to live near Lake Whitney in Texas. You know, I thought I'd fallen off the edge of the earth. Even from lower Delaware, this area west of Waco, about 30 miles, no paved roads. We had no running water, no telephones. Oh, wow. He graduated from high school in the small Texas town of China Springs. Well, it was small when he was there. Now, not so much. Actually, later this fall, he's returning for his 50th class reunion. Last year, his alma mater won the 4A Division II state football championship, and he's proud of that. Danny's research interests have been driven by the one thing that our world depends on, something that is becoming a dwindling resource. You see, Danny is trying to find a way to purify bodies of water that have been contaminated for decades. 
I often think of my career as being driven by the years 1965 to 1970, because during that time in the pre-EPA, pre-Earth Day uh, era, there was a lot of industrial chemicals, uh, growth and use of industrial chemicals that are very persistent, and we're now dealing with the legacy of those. Doing this kind of work is hard and at times frustrating. In a lot of ways, the result of his work may not be seen in his lifetime, but that's never slowed him down. Several years ago, he developed something called in-situ sediment Sediment capping. Sediment capping is a way of managing uh, large areas of contaminated sediments in, in bodies of water. And it's quite simple. It is effectively placing a cover of a clean sediment, perhaps with certain amendments added to it, but basically a clean layer of sediment over the contaminated sediment. So if we had a stable sediment environment that where contaminants were a meter deep, they pose very little risk. And so it becomes a very cost-effective and efficient way of managing contaminants. This process is designed to decrease the amount of bad stuff exposed to the water. So over time, the goal is to create a cleaner stream of water that's separated from the toxins far beneath the river's bed. And I'm talking about picograms per liter. Well, parts per trillion is nanograms per liter, so... I've never heard that. I haven't either. (laughs) So 10 to the minus 15 in terms of concentration. Danny believes in his work. He knows that what he's doing will impact people across the country. And if he can help clean the polluted water, it could make an immediate difference. So my particular interests in in contaminated sediments uh, are the big challenge to surface water quality at this point. When we we worry about mercury in fish, when we worry about uh, the the quality of, of rivers and whether we can swim in them or whether we can eat the fish that come out of them, um, these are the issues that my research is trying to address. So that's certainly a, a significant factor in why I think everyone would be interested in this and everyone uh, really is interested in this even though they may not necessarily realize the root causes. Danny knows better than anyone that we have a problem on our hands. This region is running out of water. There's evidence and truth behind that. And people like Danny are having conversations about how to fix it. He's in good company, by the way, with Rusty Smith, the director of the Texas Produce Water Consortium housed at Texas Tech. The Texas State Legislature in 2021 created the consortium to look at the technological, economic, environmental, and public health safety considerations of using produced water from oil and gas operations for reuse outside of the industry. It has the critical task of providing the legislature with information on how produced water can serve as a new water source in Texas. If we don't start working now to figure out where those resources are going to be or going to come from, we're going to have a much bigger, much more pressing problem later that will be harder to solve in the amount of time that they'll need to solve it. I learned that most oil and gas bearing rocks also contain water. So during the fracking process, that oil and gas is extracted, bringing with it this produced water byproduct. At current, it's being used, either treated and reused for those exploration activities, or, uh, and and sometimes more commonly, it's being injected back into the ground uh, through a disposal injection well. 
While the exact data is hard to find, most estimates say that an average of between four to seven barrels of water are produced with each barrel of oil in the state. And the Railroad Commission reports almost 1.8 billion barrels of oil in the last year alone. So you can see how the volume of produced water adds up quickly. This matters for West Texas, an area that is gripping tightly to the dwindling Ogallala Aquifer. Rusty and his team are working to determine how we can capture and treat that water and what we can potentially do with it. In September, his team will provide a report to the Texas State Legislature of their initial findings. And from there, we may have some insight to future water solutions in the state of Texas. Kishore Mehta still comes up to campus a few times a week. He sits in his office facing the engineering key, and he works. He's in his 80s now, but his mind is sharp as a tack. He lives in a retirement community with his old friend and former colleague, Jim McDonald. And he's still sharing what he's learned over the years to me and anyone else he interacts with. Facility manager asked me, since you have done all this, and I said, I'll be happy to do it. He provided a safety seminar to other residents in his community about what to do in case of a severe weather emergency. In case of a tornado, what would you do? And their questions are about the same. If I'm outside or if I'm in, in a, on the fourth floor of the building, where do I go? It seems to me that Kishore is still living his best life. And it's true what they say, that when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Two hundred and seventy-one miles away, an atmospheric scientist and a sociology professor walk into a house. No, seriously, it sounds like the start of a joke, but what they're attempting to do could change the scope of how we approach and use sustainable energy. That story is next time on Fearless. Fearless is brought to you by the Office of Communications and Marketing. It's hosted by me, Taylor Peters, and co-produced by Allison Hirth. Editing and sound design from Thomas Boyd. Fearless is a Texas Tech production. From here, it's possible. Hey guys, it's Taylor. Listen, we're so thankful for your support of Fearless. Thanks for listening and sharing with your friends. It helps spread the stories of the people who are doing truly life-changing work on our campus. As always, don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.